Satan knows that if he can cause you to doubt the historicity of even the book of Jonah, then he can cause you to doubt other portions of the scripture. And that's always been his methodology from the beginning, the father of lies there in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? He causes people to doubt the word of God. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Having just finished our study in the book of Romans, today we begin a new series of messages in the Old Testament book of Jonah. In our study, Pastor Carl will not only look at the historicity of this great book, but also its relevance for our lives today. If you're following along with your Bible, turn now to the book of Jonah, chapter 1, as together we'll search the scriptures. I want to invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the prophet Jonah, chapter 1. Now, be careful in finding it. If two or three pages stick together in your Bible, you could easily miss it. But it's easy to find. It's right after the book of Obadiah, all right? If you find the Psalms, which is about dead center, and scan a little bit to the right, you will soon come to this little book, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. If uh, you're new to the Bible, you might want to use your table of contents. It will give you the page number that it begins. Now, I am very pleased that God has given me the opportunity to preach this book. I preached it about 25 years ago and did just a handful of sermons in it. But I've been working on it for the last six months, and as best I can tell, I'm planning to do 10 messages from this short little book. Now, if you know the prophets of old, you know they are men for all seasons. They spoke about war, peace, violence, justice, love, faithfulness. And what they said was not just for the people of Israel, it's for God's people throughout the ages. And in many ways, it's been correctly said that the Old Testament prophets were the voice of Israel's conscience. And they had a twofold ministry. One was to afflict the comfortable, but also to comfort the afflicted. And so I want to introduce you to one of those 17 prophets we call major and minor prophets, not because some are more important than others, but based on the length of their material. It's a 4th century AD designation, but it can be helpful. And I want to introduce you to the prophet Jonah, but be careful. As you study him, you may meet your own conscience because the message that he gives is penetrating and powerful. Now, Paul said all scripture is inspired. It's God-breathed, theos pneumos. Literally, it's the breath of God Almighty. What you are reading on the pages in front of you is if you could take God's breath and write it down in ink, that's what we have. And many times, sadly, mistakenly, Christians think, well, the Old Testament is for another era, for another age. But remember what the Apostle Paul said to the church at Rome, for what was written in earlier times of course, the earlier times he's speaking of concern the Tanakh. Tanakh is what the Jews call the Old Testament. Torah, Nephaim, Ketuvim, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. One way of summarizing their Bible, we call it the Old Testament because we have a full revelation and we're distinguishing between the old deal, the new deal, the old covenant, the new covenant. We are recipients of the new covenant. But whatever was written in earlier times in the Old Testament was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. In other words, when the Holy Spirit of God moved on man of old to give us the Old Testament, it was not just written for their day, but for our day. Paul is reminding us that the instruction and the application of the Old Testament did not expire itself with that error. 
Remember, in the early church for a long time, they had not the first book of the New Testament. So when the church was started, they, they preached the Old Testament Scriptures because, of course, the Scriptures speak of Christ. It's written our, for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. Now, if you know Jonah, he is a member of an elite group of prophets. He is one who does not do any miracles, but he is a prophet that has miracles done to him. And in either case, when you study this man, there are some valuable timeless lessons that we do not want to miss. There's an urgency in the miracles that God did through Jonah that Jesus will highlight for us. We'll touch on it today. We'll explore it more deeply in the weeks to come. Now, if you're here for the first time, there's a note-taking outline. If you're listening online, you can print it out. I have four simple objectives today. Let me at least give them to you so if your mind wanders or you fall asleep when you wake up, you'll at least know where we are. First, I want to deal with the historical background of the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah will make little sense to you, like most of the prophets, unless you understand at what time frame in Israel's history they were in ministry. Second, I hope to give us an overview, a big picture of the book, so we can see how it all fits together. Third, I want to share with you four basic approaches that people take, the basic approaches people take to studying the prophet. Only one is correct, and we'll see why. And then fourth, just a brief introduction. We'll crack the door on the first verse of Jonah 1. All right, so there in your note-taking outline, we begin this morning with the historical background of the book of Jonah. Now, I know maybe for some of you, history was not your favorite subject, but it's important to understand the historical setting. In order to appreciate Jonah or really any of the 17 major and minor prophets in the Bible, you always want to know at what time frame they ministered. If I were to take your Bible and just kind of scan through it, for many of us, the Old Testament is largely clean, maybe with the exception of the Proverbs and the Psalms. And one of the reasons is because we're intimidated by the Old Testament. We can't put it together historically. And maybe we have a desire to read through the Bible in a year and we start working through it and we get hung up in the pots and pans division of the book of Leviticus and we end up stopping. So let me set the historical, pro, uh, historical context in which this man lived and ministered. If you remember, God promised through a man named Abram, later renamed Abraham, to bless all the nations of the world. How could through one man all the nations of the world be blessed? Because through this new nation that God will start, he will bring the Savior of the world, the Messiah. And if you remember, Abraham initially had two sons. He had the son of the bondwoman named Ishmael. And then he had the miracle-born baby with Sarah known as Isaac. The son of promise was Isaac. It's through Isaac's descendants that the Messiah is going to come. That does not mean, as it is falsely taught, that Ishmael went to hell. Abraham loved Ishmael. Abraham built into Ishmael's life. You will meet Ishmael in heaven. That's a gross abuse of Romans, the ninth chapter, and I have a whole message on it. But both boys couldn't be progenitors for the Messiah. And God, in his providence and sovereignty, chose that Isaac would be the son of promise. He, in turn, had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob becomes the son of promise. If you remember, he has 12 sons. Ishmael has 12 sons. They become uh, progenitors for 12 tribes of what we call today the Arab nations. And here's Jacob, and he has 12 sons. 
and they form the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. There's a point when God changes Jacob's name to Israel, and so they are typically referred to as the sons of Israel. Well, in Genesis 15, God continues to unfold his covenant with Abraham, and he gives him a word of prophecy. Listen to these words, Genesis 15, 13. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. So a famine comes on the land due to the severity of the famine. The 12 tribes head down to Egypt. God in his providence chose to preserve the nation of Israel and the surrounding nations, including Egypt, through Joseph. What his brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. And so they go to the land of Egypt where there is plenty of food and then seven years of severe famine. Well, after Joseph dies, there arose a new king, the scripture says, that did not know Joseph. And so the people, just as God had prophesied to Abraham, end up in bondage for 400 years. But after the 400 years is over, if you remember, God raises up Moses. We've been studying him on Wednesday nights. And he becomes a deliverer. Someone asked me this week on the Bible line about Moses. He is likened to the prophet to come. Moses and Christ are very similar in, in a number of ways. And if uh, you're interested in that answer, it's a 10-minute answer. You can go to the Bible line at wagp.net. Um, but once in the promised land, of course, Moses does not enter because of um, an act of, of pride And so he dies on top of Mount Nebo, and Joshua leads the people into the promised land. After Joshua dies in one generation, degeneration takes place. And then a terrible period of ups and downs known as the time of the judges began. There's a book that describes that, of course, the book of Judges. Uh, When the people look at the surrounding nations, they want a human king like the other nations have. And so we enter into a new period of time known as the period of the kingdom or the period of the monarchy. And of course, the first three kings in Israel's history were the most famous, SDS, Saul, David, Solomon. Each of them ruled for 40 years for a total of 120 years. For 120 years, the kingdom is united. And if you remember from 1 Kings 11, Solomon's heart is drawn away by foreign women who lead him into idolatrous behavior. And so God told him he was going to split the kingdom because of his disobedience. But for the sake of his father, David, he would wait until his son came to the throne. Listen to these words, 1 Kings 11, verse 1. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. And then in verse 4 of that chapter, it says, For it came about when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of his father David had been. And let me just say in passing this morning, you cannot take the clear instruction from the word of God and set it aside without consequence. You can't live with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. And so because of the obstinacy and the greed of Solomon, the kingdom ended up splitting. Here's a map that shows you pictures for us, what it was like in his day. Uh, The northern section became known as Israel. Ten tribes broke away from the 12 tribes, and they were known as Israel. The capital was Samaria. There was two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and so the southern section of Israel became known as Judah. 
So the northern kingdom, it's known as Israel. Sometimes it's called the house of Samaria. Sometimes it's called the house of Joseph. Sometimes it's called Ephraim. And the southern kingdom is just called Judah. Now, this is important because when you read the Old Testament, sometimes you read Israel and you're thinking all 12 tribes. You've got to ask what context is the word being used in. Because sometimes when the word Israel is being used, it's specifically referring to the northern kingdom. Now, if you remember, both the northern and the southern kingdom both had 20 kings. All 20 kings in the northern kingdom were evil. There were 20 kings in the southern kingdom. 12 were evil. Eight were righteous kings. So God sends these different prophets to the northern kingdom to say, look, you need to repent of your sin and of your idolatry. Of course, the first king, Rehoboam, who uh, comes to the throne in the northern kingdom, he doesn't want the people, or, or Jeroboam, he doesn't want the people to, uh, Rehoboam is the king in the southern kingdom, but Jer- Jeroboam, he's in the northern kingdom, he doesn't want the people to go back to Jerusalem and worship, so he creates some new worship centers. And with time, the new capital for the northern kingdom becomes Samaria. And so centuries later, the Lord Jesus meets a woman at the well, and she asks a pertinent question. Where do you think we should worship? The Jewish people say down there in Jerusalem. We as Samaritans say up here in Samaria. But that comes from centuries before when the worship centers were moved in disobedience because God had set his name on just one city, Jerusalem, as the place of worship. So he sends these different prophets to the northern kingdom. Repent, or I'm going to judge you. And they don't repent. And so in 722 B.C., God sends the Assyrians, and they carry away the ten northern tribes. God sends more prophets to the southern kingdom. Repent, or God is going to judge you. 136 years go by, and on 586 B.C., the final of three carryings away is done, and the southern kingdom is carried off. The Babylonians overthrow the Assyrians. They eventually come down and get the southern kingdom and carry them off to Babylon. It's easy to keep straight. A comes before B. I comes before J. So you have the Assyrians who come before the Babylonians, and you have Israel that comes before Judah. All right? Now, that's important. So when you read an Old Testament prophet, you always want to ask at what point in Israel's history is this person in ministry? Did they preach before the exile when the kingdom was divided? Did they preach during the exile, or did they preach after the exile? If they preached before the exile, we typically refer to them as pre-exilic prophets. And if they preached before the exile, did they preach to the northern kingdom, or did they preach to the southern kingdom? And there's a few who are involved in both. During the exile, it's easy to remember, there's just two prophets who preach, Daniel and Ezekiel. They're called exilic prophets. After the exile, we call them post-exilic prophets. There's just three. There's Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, who comes, of course, at the end of our Bibles. So when you understand that Jonah was a pre-exilic prophet, there's a historical note that God will give us that we'll look at today as to what king he was in ministry to, which dates him 750 B.C., which tells us he's preaching to the northern kingdom. And when we understand that, the book of Jonah is going to come alive for us. So again, the Old Testament is often a closed book to us because we can't put it together historically. 
but it's not as complicated as we might make it. So Jonah, he's a pre-exilic prophet, lived 750 years before Christ, preaching to the northern kingdom. Secondly, beyond the historical background of the book, let's think for a moment about the overview of the book of Jonah, the overview of the book of Jonah. I think if we can climb a contextual tree here, we can get the big picture. And when you get the big picture of any book of the Bible, the component parts take on much more meaning. See, sometimes we think of a book of the Bible and we say, oh, I'm not sure what's in that book. We kind of just go blank. But if you read a book several times over, you begin to see how it all fits together and it becomes a tool not just in your own life, but in your ministry to other people as well. And so uh, if you read and reread the book, and so I'm going to do the introductory sermon today. We have a special Sunday, the next three Sundays, and then we'll come back at the first of the year. So for the next month, I want you to do a deep dive into the book of Jonah. Study it as much as you can. Find out as much as you can about the book of Jonah. That will make our time of study that much more meaningful. Again, it only takes about 15 minutes to read, and if you read it and reread it, you'll discover that the book basically centers around two commissions. You look for structural markers, like if you read uh, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, we have a divine outline for the book of Acts. Well, when you read the book of Jonah, you see there are two key structural markers, and under those two key structural markers, in turn, there's two divisions. So the first structural marker comes right in the beginning of the book. We read in Jonah 1, 1 and 2, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Then when you come to chapter 3 in verses 1 and 2, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, same message, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So there's the major divisions. Here's a chart maybe to help you to put it together. I made this chart actually in the 1980s. I copyrighted it in 1990. I saw someone else using it recently. They were born after I made the chart. <laughs> in either case, uh, the first commission of Jonah is covered in the first two chapters. The geographical setting is on the sea. The second half of Jonah deals with the recommission of Jonah, and the focus is in the city of Nineveh. You can further subdivide this book. In chapter 1, you're dealing with the prodigal prophet. He's running away from God in disobedience. In chapter 2, he's in the belly of the great fish. We would call him the praying prophet. There we go, second, the praying prophet. In chapter 3, we have the preaching prophet. He's in the city preaching to over 600,000 people. And then in chapter 4, sitting under his little tree, uh, he is the pouting prophet. So in chapter 1, uh, he is uh, running from God. He's the prodigal prophet. He's praying in chapter 2. You'd pray too if you were in the belly of a great fish. In chapter 3, he's preaching in obedience, but he's kind of moaning and groaning at the end of the book. So in the beginning of the book, he is absent without love. We call him the AWOL prophet, A-W-O-L. At the end of the book, he's angry without love. And so we'll see, though, that this man finished well, contrary to maybe what some of us think. So that's the big picture of the book. Read it. Again, it will only take you about 15 minutes. Maybe read it once a week. 
If you want to read it more, fantastic. But at least read it once a week between now and the 1st of January. Now, beyond the historical background and the overview, let me share with you the basic approaches to studying the book of Jonah. And we'll hone on this this morning. And this is really important. I want to share four basic approaches that different people have taken in studying this prophet. I suppose there are a few books of the Bible that are more maligned, more attacked, and more ridiculed than the book of Jonah. And that's significant because Satan and his critics don't go after secondary targets. They go after primary targets. Satan knows that if he can cause you to doubt the historicity of even the book of Jonah, then he can cause you to doubt other portions of the Scripture. And that's always been his methodology from the beginning, the father of lies there in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? He causes people to doubt the Word of God. And you soon discover, especially books that are filled with the miraculous, because a natural, unregenerate mind cannot embrace the miraculous, he will attack those books. Um, you know, for them to believe that God sent this great fish to uh, swallow up Jonah and preserve him and to deliver him to this spot, that, that's just sheer nonsense to them. But listen, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And if he disguises himself as an angel of light, so don't his servants. So four basic approaches. Because of the miraculous, some conclude this is just myth. This is just a fictional story. It's a cute little story for children. Uh, it's kind of like the story of Hercules, or maybe in more recent time, the story of Robinson Crusoe or Gulliver's Travel. Delightful little story, but not an ounce of history to it. The layman's Bible commentary, it says this regarding the book of Jonah. It says, the great fish appointed to swallow up Jonah is not intended to be taken literally. It is the author's way of getting the prophet back as quickly as possible to his task, and as such fits in quite well with the story. Jesus' reference to the sign of Jonah has no bearing on the historicity of the book or the literal character of the tale. So for the liberal scholar, because he has trouble with the miraculous, he has trouble with the creator, it's just a little piece of fiction. Now, think about it, because people think very superficially, even evangelical Christians sometimes, about the book of Jonah. Let me give you a pop quiz. Fill in the blank with the first answer that comes to your mind. Zacharias climbed the sycamore tree. Adam and Eve. Oh, this is really weak. Adam and Eve. All right, I think you're there. You're awake. All right. Noah built the ark. Elijah was up on top of Mount Carmel. Daniel was in the lion's den. Jonah and the whale. All right, so you see, part of the problem is with these biblical accounts is that we only study them on a surface level. We think of the sensational and we miss the finer points in the, in the process. Now, obviously, there's a whole lot more to Zacchaeus than just climbing a sycamore tree. There's a whole lot more to Daniel than being in the lion's den. There's a whole lot more to Noah than building a gigantic ark. And there's a whole lot more to Jonah than just being captured and protected and preserved in a great fish. The King James says, well, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But what I want you to see this morning is that when we think of Jonah, very often we just think of Jonah and the whale. But this is more than a fish story. In fact, it's not a fish story. 
It is a fish story, but it's not a fish story, at least maybe the way people represent it today. Some say it's just a piece of fiction. It's a fish tale, just like the one you told about the fish you missed, right? No, this is not some fish tale. This is real history. And we're going to see that in Christ's mind, it's important history because he is going to link his own death and resurrection to this particular book. For another group of people who have problems with the miraculous, they don't always want to come right out and as the pastor of a church just say, well, this is fiction. So somewhat stealthily, they say, well, this is a parable, that this is um, some spiritual lesson that we can take and apply to our life. It's no different, they would say, than the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's, it's a story with a, mor- with a moral truth behind it. Well, um, we would be quick to say that there are parabolic portions in the Old Testament. Not a lot, but there are some. We studied one uh, since we finished James. If you remember, Nathan the prophet went and, and uh, preached to King David about uh, the rich man who took a poor man's you and barbecued him, and he said, you're the man. That was a parable with a message behind it. And they said, well, that's true with Jonah. It's just a legend, but it's a legend with a message. Again, the, the problem with that is when you study parables in Scripture, there's a certain characteristic of parabolic uh, literature that this book certainly does not have. Um, it doesn't have any of those characteristics. Now, there's a third view. It's not the mythological view. It's not the parabolic view. It's the allegorical view. They say, well, this is a book of allegory. Now, how do they come to that? Because the word Jonah, Yonah in Hebrew, is the word for his name means dove. And in two places, once in the Psalms and once in the book of Hosea, Yonah, dove, is a reference to the people of Israel. And so they would say, therefore, Jonah is symbolic of the people of Israel. He was not an actual, literal, historical person, but he was a person who was symbolic of Israel and that there's deeper meaning uh, behind the story. And so they would say, just as Israel say, was to be a light to the nations, a witness to the Gentiles, even so Jonah was to be a light to the people of Nineveh. They would say, just as uh, Israel failed in her witness to the Gentile nations, even so, initially, Jonah failed in his witness to the Ninevites. Uh, They would say that when Jonah ended up captive in the belly of a great fish, even so, the people of Israel ended up captive under the Babylonians. Um, They would reason further that just as Jonah is regurgitated and delivered back to the place God wants him, At the end of 70 years, uh, the people who've been carried off by the Babylonians, they end up back in the land of Israel. Now, here's the challenge with that view. Um, There are certainly times in Scripture, by the way, where God gives typology. And so that's kind of what they've done. They've taken an allegory, and they might even say it's a prophetic allegory, that it's a type of sorts. The problem with that, and again, allegory is not foreign to the Bible. There's one allegory in the New Testament found in Galatians, and there are six allegories that are found in the Old Testament. But allegory is represented as allegory. Like in Galatians, Paul says, this is an allegory. So you can't just take any passage of Scripture and say, well, let me tell you what it really means and give the deeper meaning behind it. Oftentimes, people will allegorize the account of Jonah. 
but the Bible does not present Jonah as a fictitious character, nor does it represent his time in the whale as a made-up story. To listen again to today's message, use the Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy app, available for smartphones and tablets, or listen online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling us at 877-787-7478 and requesting program JNH1. You can also visit us at searchthescriptures.org or use the Search the Scriptures app to listen to any of the messages in the Book of Romans that you may have missed. Tomorrow, Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found in the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. When we return Monday, we'll continue to crack open the book of Jonah. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.